Hello and welcome to Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today. We'll be looking at the fourth chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. And as we prepare to look at this passage, we'll pay attention to its context in the rest of Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, but we'll also look at how it applies to our lives today as believers and what Paul is reminding those early believers of that are still truths that we need to hear today and challenges maybe to the way we choose to live and behave that we need to hear today. Well, let's prepare our hearts as we turn to this passage, and let's do so by turning to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have blessed us with. We thank you for the opportunity to serve you, the opportunity to study your word, to delve into scripture and to hear your voice speaking to our hearts. Now, Father, as we study this chapter of Scripture today, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts to the voice of your Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear the words that you have for us, that you would give us insight into how we might live in such a way as to honor you and follow your word. Lord, it is our desire to worship you through our very lives and we know that you are calling us to ever greater obedience, that we may glorify you, pointing others around us towards you, the true source of peace and salvation. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now let's turn our attention to this fourth chapter. As we begin, you're going to notice that Paul begins with the word finally in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, but understand, this isn't the end of the discussion. It's just finally he's turning his attention to these things, these, uh, if you will, these teachings or these exhortations for the early believers as to some key areas of life that need to reflect their converted nature. And then he moves from that into, in the latter part of this chapter, answering questions that have been given to him, uh, issues that had come up in the church. They were asking questions, you know, what about this? Well, how does this play out? Because remember, this is a church that had maybe three months of discipling, and that's of the believers that that came to Christ first during Paul and Timothy and Silas and that whole crew's ministry there in Thessalonica. And now Paul is sending Timothy back to them, and he's he's trying to be encouraging and trying to work on building on that foundation. But there are some areas he's already mentioned back in the last chapter that there were some gaps in their faith, and his desire was to see those gaps filled, if you will. So this is part of that trying to fill in some of those gaps. Let's begin in chapter 4. Again, his first word, finally. He says, finally, dear brothers and sisters. We urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. So how should we live? Well, in a way that pleases God. And how do we know what that is? Well, in this case, Paul says, we, we taught you that way. He says, you live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. 
For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a call back to remember, hey, we've already laid a foundation here. Continue to live out that foundation. Continue to live in a way that glorifies God. Follow what you've already learned. Remember. Isn't it interesting how as we go through life and we get sidetracked and distracted and we we get into things in our lives that may cause us trouble or seem to overwhelm us? How so often it's remembering some of those basic truths that can sometimes give us that perspective we need to put things in order. That reminder we need that we, not only we don't have to be in charge, but in fact, we aren't in charge. But we need to turn to the one who is. Um, Good reminders. Good things to keep in mind. Now, as Paul moves into the third verse of this fourth chapter, he approaches a whole nother area of discussion. He's uh, living lives pleasing to God. Now he's going to unpack that a little. And one of the areas he's going to address, or the primary area actually, that he's going to address here is, well, it's the area of sexual sin. So let's take a look at that. In verse 3, he says, God's will for you, or God's will is for you, to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Now, sexual sin there, it's it's actually comes from a Greek word. Um, the Greek word is porneia. Sound familiar? Yeah. That's where we get the word pornography. But porneia is any sexual relation outside the bounds of marriage. That's a pretty big, broad category, isn't it? And yet, if you look at the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the Old Testament, sexuality is is a God-given thing to be practiced within the bounds of of a covenant marriage relationship. And anything outside those bounds, well, it's destructive. It will tear things up. It will cause damage. It is harmful to us. See, we forget. We start thinking that sin when God tells us to not do things or to stay away from things, it's because I don't know, It was Thursday and he didn't have anything better to do. So he came up with a list of rules of things we shouldn't do. And I know that's not what happened, but we kind of approach life that way, don't we? Or approach our faith that way sometimes where we just get hung up on this idea that God has this list of things he just doesn't want us to do. And that's really a backwards perspective. What God is doing is laying the boundaries and saying, look, everything past this point will hurt you. Everything past this point will do damage to you and to others. And because he loves us, he's saying, I love you and I don't want to see you suffer. I don't want to see you hurt. So don't do these things. But being the 
sometimes bratty children that we are, we look at our Heavenly Father and go, oh, you just don't want me to do that because you don't want me to, I don't know, have fun or you don't want me to do what I want or it's just a dumb rule because we don't understand it. When the reality is all of those things that we consider sins, all of those things prohibited in Scripture are laid out there for us to set the boundaries of where it's safe and where it will do damage. And even in the realm of sexuality, there is a boundary in which it is beneficial and safe. And then there's outside that boundary where it is destructive, where it does damage. It's actually pretty straightforward if we think about it. Well, back to the passage. God's will is for you to be holy. Now, what does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart for God, to be dedicated to the use of God. Is God's will for you to be holy? So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Not in lustful passions like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Hmm. Not in lustful passions like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Well, yeah. As we look back on ancient history, we see in, in the Mediterranean world, prostitution was allowed. Um, mistresses... Um, sexual relations outside the bounds of marriage with the exception of the Christian and Jewish commit uh, communities in the early world, those were not particularly frowned down upon. Now it wasn't equitably applied. Sexual relations in the Mediterranean world were seen as okay outside the bounds of marriage, unless you were married. And then uh, there were some prohibitions there. And then you move into the Greco-Roman world, and there was a, a high standard wives had to be faithful to their husbands. Husbands, on the other hand, did not have to be faithful to their wives. Hmm. Something seems off kilter there, huh? Where coming out of the Jewish faith and and really the culmination of the Jewish faith, the, the Christian faith, what we see taught by Christ, what we see taught through Scripture, is God calls us to a higher standard. He established the marriage covenant. We see that all the way back with, well, Adam and Eve in the garden. And he calls us to behave differently. And Paul is reminding that church there at Thessalonica, that this is a significant thing. This is an area of life you cannot ignore as you seek to follow Christ with your life. You can repent of part of it. You can, you can confess it. You can weed it out within your own life. You know, deal with it however it needs to be dealt with. But don't ignore it. God has a standard and he calls us to holiness and we can't pursue holiness and ignore this whole area of life. 
Well, he continues on in verse 6. He says, Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife. There's that standard, that covenant marriage idea um, that, you know, no, you, you both harm and cheat your Christian brother by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins, as we have solemnly warned you before. Now that's, yeah, that's a pretty stern warning. He's saying, look, this is out of bounds. So see that it doesn't happen. Because you do, and the Lord's coming after you. The Lord avenges all such sins. Going on in verse 7. God has called us to live holy lives. There it is again. And just to make it clear, God calls us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teachings, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I know that's not going to sell well in our modern world, but there is the reality from Scripture. God has laid out some boundaries, and those boundaries don't just apply to sexual morality. But here, Paul is pointing out very clearly that God calls us to holiness, that our ignoring the boundaries of sexual expression that are allowed in Scripture and plowing through the ones that aren't allowed, then um, we're we're in a mess. And we can claim we're living for Jesus, but we're not. And we can claim we're being holy, but we're not. And verse 8 says it, Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching. Because some people, oh, that's just what the church teaches, but they're all a bunch of prudes or whatever. No. They're not disobeying human teaching, but they're rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I mean, Paul's being pretty stern with them. And he's doing it as an encouragement to the church at Thessalonica. They were infants in their faith, and they were doing a pretty good job of living for Jesus. But there were some gaps, and Paul's filling in those gaps and letting them know, look, this is an important area. This is an important area. Now Paul moves into a passage in verse 9 where he begins to to, um, well, to talk to them about the importance of loving each other in the family of Christ. This is expressing godly love for one another and building each other up. And, and he begins to discuss that with them. Here's what he says, starting in 9. He says, But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Remember, Paul has already talked about how he lived among them and he chose to use his tent-making profession, his 
day job, if you will, to even fund his own ministry there. Not because they weren't loving and willing to support him, but because he wanted to take a different approach with them. And he's saying, look, you have been supportive of the other churches in the region, places like Philippi. But don't just stop there. You're doing great. But don't sit back and go, yeah, we're doing great. Stay at it. Look at other ways you can do that. And in your own communities, in your own lives, live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Why is he saying this? Because when even the lost world begins to look at you and you're not a person that thrives on drama, but you're just going to plow through, you're going to get the job done, you're going to see that what needs taken care of is taken care of, they're going to see something in that. They're going to notice a priority system in your life. And it's going to be interesting to them. It will pique their interest. And as he says in 12, then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. Some profound words there for how we should live and how we should express our love and concern for our fellow believers as well. Sometimes we get real concerned about what people in our community might say. Well, Scripture's pretty straightforward on if we're living for Jesus, there's going to be people in our community that have a lot to say about that, and it's not going to be good because it is an affront to their sin. They're enemies of Christ. This lost world is an enemy of Christ. And when we start living for Jesus, we fall into that category too. So this isn't saying live your life so that no one in the community talks bad about you and everyone's happy with what you're doing. That's a fantasy world. and You're not going to get there. But instead, don't do stuff that's going to stir up trouble. Don't do stuff that's going to generate drama. But instead, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your hands. then people who are not Christians will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. Pretty significant guidance there. Now we get to Philippians 4, 13 and following. And in this, as Paul has been with this question or his answer, really, response to what it is to love God's family, where he has talked to the church about how they're doing a great job of loving other believers in their region and supporting them, and then how they should live themselves in their community remember their community that is persecuting them, how they can live in such a way that, well, that, that non-Christians will show them respect, will, will notice something about their lives. Well, the next question deals with those believers within the church who have died. And the translation I'm reading from, New Living Translation, renders it as died. Uh, most of your other English translations are going to talk about fallen asleep. And that is a bit of a euphemism for death. Uh, first century literature, it seems to be a term that is used in place of death on a regular basis. 
But I think Paul's intentionally saying fallen asleep here. Uh, There's a different connotation to it almost. But be that as it may, let's take a look at this passage. Starting in 13, it says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. In other words, we don't want you, as as other translations render it, to be ignorant, to, to be in the dark on this, to not know. We want you to know. And again, this is another one of those gaps in their faith that they just weren't discipled on. They just weren't taught these things before Paul and his group had to leave Thessalonica. And so now he's writing back to try to flesh this out some. And it's become real relevant because they're seeing their brothers and sisters pass. So we don't, we're, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Now, it's important to note there, he doesn't say don't grieve, but he says that you won't grieve like people who have no hope. Why? Because you understand what's going on. There's still an appropriate time for grief, and grief is an appropriate response to loss like that. But don't grieve like there's no hope. The way you grieve gives evidence to the power of your faith in Christ in your life going on in 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. Now, there's one of the central tenets of of, uh, proclaiming Christ, of our doctrinal belief in Christ, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's his atoning work and his resurrection makes all the difference. And so we're reminded of that. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So they're saying, well, what about these that have died? Hey, we believe that just as Jesus died and rose again, that when he returns, he's bringing them all with him. They're just as much included in the return. And there's this great reunion coming. He goes on in 15 and says, We tell you this directly from the Lord. This is some. This is taken from Jesus' teachings, is what Paul's doing here. He says, We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. In other words, they're not at a disadvantage because they have passed on from this life first. But instead, it's all together. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. These were words of encouragement. Not words to divide the church. Not words to cause centuries of debate over who's right and who's wrong and all that stuff. But instead, this was meant to remind us of that greater reality 
remind us of how it ends, what our future is, the victory that is promised and assured. Because that will encourage us as we face challenges in the, right here and right now. And also, it will encourage us as we know that those who knew the Lord and have passed before us are not at a disadvantage. Now, I've had folks regarding this passage ask me questions and and say, "Hey, well, you know, what what about this? The you know, first the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. So when we die, we just fall asleep and they bury us and we lay there in the grave until the return. I don't think so. And for lots of reasons, uh, not the least of which is, you know, Jesus and the thief on the cross. And Lord, remember me. And then Jesus telling him today, you will be with me in paradise today. Not, you know, Hey, when I come back, I'll, I'll catch you then. No, today. Now, we need to also understand that in the presence of the Lord, time as we understand it is meaningless. Time is part of the created order that God made for us. So we don't need to get too hung up on that. But instead, understand what he's talking about here is the resurrection. That upon the Lord's return, number one, those that have died get their resurrected bodies. That happens up from the grave. We who have not died yet are changed. And we get our resurrected bodies. It'll be cool. Can't tell you what it's going to look like. Can't tell you what it's going to be like. I can tell you it's going to be better. It's going to be awesome. And I really think that is all Paul is laying out here. This is not a theological dissertation on the return and eschatology. This is Paul writing just a few verses of encouragement, answering a question to the church at Thessalonica. And let's take it as that. And let's understand that just as it was written for them to remind them of the point, it was written so we could encourage each other with those words as we stand at a graveside of a friend or a loved one. If they knew the Lord, then we know that that resurrection is coming. We know they are just as in it as we are. We know that we will all be joined together in the presence of God. And that that day is coming. It is cause for hope. It is cause for celebration. And we need to encourage each other with reminders of that reality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us hope, that you show us there is so much more than just what we see in front of us. That even, even when we're faced with the prospect of our own mortality, when we're faced with the prospect of friends, loved ones, mentors dying 
that if they are brothers and sisters in faith, if they knew you as Savior and Lord, then there is hope and there is promise. And we know you will return. And we know when that happens, nobody's going to miss it. And that those have gone, those who have gone ahead of us, well, Father, that you have just given them a head start. And Lord, we long for that great day of the Lord in your timing. We know you are holding off so that more will have opportunity to turn to you in faith and receive life. But Lord, we look for that day. Help us to live lives that reflect holiness. Lives that are holy to you. That show your presence to the world around us. That we may point others to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.